Um, so my role is as introduction said, I'm a, a partner and I, I at PwC and I specialise in forensic accounting work and basically what that means is anything that's fit for court. So you know when you're involved something's gone horribly wrong. Um, and so what I love about my role is you're always on the burning deck. And so you some people run towards a fire, run some people run away from the fire and probably in the former category I I like to get in and sort stuff out. Um, so my passion for my role comes from the fact that it's it's contentious, everything matters. Uh, you have to be quite opinionated, uh, evidence-based in your thinking. You need to be articulate and and express an opinion and why you why you believe that. And so I'm impassioned about anything to do with an argument. My my father said I always had this sort of way of operating. It was it was a private fight or can anyone join? Um, and so, <laughs> um, remarkably, in my personal life, I'm very placid. I know that's hard to believe, but um, so I, I love contentious matters and I love the fact that there might be someone who will tell me that actually, no, they didn't take that money or they've done nothing wrong or, you know, my analysis is incorrect. I, I love it. I want to hear more of it. Um, and I think it's a really, I'm very comfortable with debate as well. I think it's a really important process of dispute resolution and I'm quite passionate about dispute resolution getting to the right um, getting to the right end game, if you like. And, you know, you might take a few punches along the way, but it's all part of the sport, um, I'm sure. And also I, I like the idea that um, I deal with clients when they're in a situation they probably never thought their career would go through. So litigation, I'm sure anyone who's in, in litigation here would attest to, for us it's a bit every day the, the the issues that we get involved in but for your clients it's extremely stressful and it's quite nice to be able to take that away because you're experienced in this world and and make things easier like you have people who say I can't sleep at night because I'm worried about x y and z or you know you've got to go to court and I've done nothing wrong I'm just a lay evidence a lay witness but I, this is the most stressful thing I've been through um and I enjoy being able to help people through that um so in terms of what I wanted to be when I grew up uh still trying to work that out um but I wanted to I was trying to think about this today as I was rereading some of these questions and interestingly the the two things I was either to be a lawyer um or a barrister so as you can tell I really do like um, or in PR. <laughs> so, um, and I don't think I ever entertained any any other careers other than probably the embarrassing ones where we didn't understand when we were a kid when someone said, what did you want to be when you grew up? I, I, I probably think I had a few sort of firefighters or train drivers or something like that in there. But again, you know, very uh, uh, against prototype or against stereotype as a little girl. <laughs> Very good. You sure you didn't consider politics? <laughs> Wanting to be a, a politician, not necessarily. I think I might have said it a couple of times at school. When I grow up, I'm going to be prime minister or something silly like that. But I don't know how committed I genuinely was. In fact, you know, obviously I started out in, a, in our industry and, and was quite happy there and, and loved it. 
Um, I it wasn't that I fell into politics. It was sort of an intentional fall. I was um, I'd, I'd always been involved in the periphery of the Liberal Party. My parents had been members. I knew people that were members. I'd handed out how to vote cards. I'd done all the right things, but I wasn't a member myself until I was in my thirties. And, uh, and I was actually pregnant uh, with my second child and I went back. I was at Rothschild at that stage and I went back to work and Rothschild had been taken over by Westpac. They were merging with BT. They were handing out packages right, left and centre. I was pregnant with my second. I hadn't told anybody. So I grabbed a package and ran. But this is terrible. Um, I, I ended up with a kid in childcare, which was like, gold at that stage I had one kid in, in childcare for two days and I was pregnant with the other one and I thought well I'm not going to lose the childcare spot that's precious so I went back to university and studied politics just for, for interest's sake more than anything else just to keep the brain ticking over and and I realized I loved it I absolutely loved it I was so much better at it than I was at, when I did my original commerce degree and uh, and then when I'd finished that, I just had my third child, and uh, and, a, and a position became available. One of my our local member retired, and I thought I'd have a crack at pre-selection. I went down at, with the help of Louise in a screaming heap, but um, uh, <laughs> I don't think it was your fault. Um, I think it was genuinely my naivety. But it was an amazing experience. It was uh, you know a, a political pre-selection is is like an um, a job interview on steroids. If you can imagine a job interview where uh, you know fifty people get to ask you every question imaginable, from you know what's your favourite book, right through to what's your position on um, uh, China in the in the South China Seas or something, and, and you have to have an answer. And they're not necessarily looking for the right answer; they're looking at how you answer the question. It's an incredible test of your intellect, of your character, of your stamina, of your temperament, um, because people will niggle on purpose. And they will ask you things like, you know, three kids, how on earth are you going to manage that? And they don't do it because necessarily they want to know, or some of them do, um, but they want to know how you're going to answer that question. You know, and it's not it's 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 not necessarily a, a, an impertinent question because the general public sometimes might want to know that too, and you've got to be prepared to answer the public, not just the party. So, uh, so those sorts of things, you know, you don't want to, you know, get your back up and say none of your business. Uh, you've got to you've got to have an answer, an appropriate one that is a, a very nice and polite and diplomatic way of saying none of your business. <laughs> but um, so, and and that first press election where I went down, uh, I. I actually lost to Michael O'Brien, now the leader of the opposition, um, and uh, and uh, and it was such a terrific experience. Isn't it terrible? I mean, it's you know so exhausting. But I sat back up. It's like being run over by a tank, and then sitting up afterwards, going, oh, "I love that. I'll do that again." And so I went on, and um, I, you know, I I ran for a state seat, uh, just in the upper house, which was a sort of in the colour and movement section of the ticket, just to sort of get my campaign experiences up. I joined the organisation wing. I did a lot of training, a lot of mentoring, and some work with bringing more women into the Liberal Party. And uh, and then finally, when a Senate seat became available, I was very lucky. I was tapped on the shoulder by um, by some people at sort of senior ranks who said, you know, we think you might be the right person for this. And it was perfect timing for me. My kids were that bit older. Uh, it was 10 years since I'd run for that first pre-selection. And, of course, I had a professional background in our industry too that gave gave me a sort of a, a credibility that um, that that 
that helped me along the way. So that's how I ended up here. Did I ever consider alternatives? Absolutely, I did. In fact, I really loved my jobs, most of my jobs, not all of them, in the finance mm-hmm. industry. And, and particularly the last one I had in superannuation, I loved. What an extraordinary industry that is. So, I, you know, I, 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 and the non-executive director roles, they were, they were you know, terrific too. You know, they, they were really mind-stretching. So, uh, so yes, I had lots of alternative plans. I think everybody in politics has to have an alternative plan because, you know, we're very lucky to be where we are and it's an extraordinary honour to be able to represent, you know, the, the people of your state or your electorate or whoever it might be. Um, but we know that we're not necessarily here forever, so we've got to make sure that, um, you know, that we do the best we can while we're here for the people that um, gave us the honour of being here in the first place. Lovely. Hi, um, I'm Ariane Barker. Lovely to see all of you. So I've just, that's phenomenal. I really am quite blown away. And I hope that I can meet the same brief um, equally well. My path was very different. You can tell from my accent, I grew up overseas. Um, so I was the, the tomboy. I was the girl who always was playing with the boys. And as I grew up, I had a very dominant French traditional mother who was talking to me about marriage and getting um, having children at a young age. And I was doggedly pursuing the um the path that she didn't want me to take which was pushing my way in to play with the boys and to meet the challenge of the boys whether it be at sport or whether it be at school I remember my first math competition I came in first and my best friend who was a boy came in second and he beat me up outside and I was really (laughs) upset with it because I thought we were friends and that was my first taste of um, of that sort of competition, and, and I thrived on that competition. I loved playing with the boys. And at university, um, my father, who was an engineer, said to me, you should be an engineer. I walked into the first engineering class. I was the only girl in the class. And I hate to say it, boys, but there was a lot of tall, thin, pimply boys. I just couldn't deal with that kind of um, environment. So I, I, I kind of took myself off and went and did the mathematics, economics degree because I felt like that was a little bit more... Um, accessible and I wasn't going to have to um, try and be the only girl in the class. <laughs> um, so long story short, through the course of my life, I've traveled quite a bit and I've always pushed the envelope. And for me, I was I, I honestly had no idea what I wanted to do. My parents kept asking me about my um, degree and marriage and relationships and None of that was on my mind. I was a woman of the 90s. I graduated university in the early 90s. And I was told that I could have the career, the job, the family. I, I was told I could have all these things. So I was convinced, I'd convinced myself I could do that. And um, I, I got my degree in economics and mathematics. I was recruited for Wall Street. I was at that time in the, in the 90s. Uh, Merrill Lynch uh, hired me straight out of undergrad. And I had the most phenomenal experience in New York as an analyst getting my ass kicked from morning till night and at the time that was the environment Um, but again didn't have that clear idea I just knew that I was now working in a field where I could use my quantitative skills I always was looking for the answers around the data the numbers I wanted to see what the numbers were telling us I worked in equities I worked in fixed interests and I moved around quite a bit in the firm and I had the privilege of being transferred to to London um, as part of one of my roles, and then I was asked to move to Asia, um, and my fiance at the time, who's who's now my husband, who's Australian, um, he was getting a, he was looking to come back to Australia. So I was happily going on this journey, but for me, what 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 evolved over time, which is why I'm telling you all of the stories, 
um, is that I was a bit of a rebel, but at the same time, it became clear that the data side of my brain was absolutely <laughs> riveted with what was going on in financial services. Having that journey from the 90s to the noughties to now and watching what's happened around traditional asset classes, I've worked, I started my career predominantly in equities and then fixed interest, but then I moved into derivatives. I, I moved to um, Goldman Sachs in Hong Kong when I was working there to help establish their hedge fund business. And I absolutely loved it. And I kept having people in my family and in my personal life say, why are you doing that? That's so risky. And this concept about risk just kept coming up in my career. Um, and since I've immigrated to Australia, I really recognize that in our industry, and it's never been more topical than now around what's happening in the industry, the amount of risk that people are willing to take and what is best practice and what does good governance look like. These questions are all extremely valid questions. And I think we as a culture and as a society, not only domestically, but globally, have a responsibility to front into these things and to actually start questioning and answering. Um, so I've landed very firmly in the um, alternative asset space as a result of my background. Um, that was not the original plan. The original plan for my mother was to get married to a nice Frenchman and to have an apartment in Paris. And I'm sorry to say that didn't happen. So um, I am delighted to be here in Melbourne. It's fabulous. But landing back in the alternative asset space, I have learned quite a bit around what does volatility look like? What does the liquidity look like? What do trading metrics look like? And I love working with men and women across different asset classes who come from traditional paths. So you'll have your traditional domestic equity analyst who typically works in the funds management space. But now what we're seeing is a huge range of interesting opportunities in the venture capital alternative space that is quite new. It's new for Australia. It's new globally. And there's some amazing investments to be had. So that's been a really interesting um, aspect to my career, as well as what I'm seeing around um, the startup space in Australia. So I'm happy to talk to that a little bit more in the rest of the question and answering. But to, long story short, um, along, along my journey, I'd considered um, actuarial science. I'd considered engineering. I had considered being a math teacher. I love coaching people. I love working with people. I love mentoring people. I'm very, very passionate about supporting men and women who come behind to share my experience because I know that I didn't have enough of those people in my career, and particularly if you're working in very risky assets and, and if you get involved in the governance side, um, being able to actually have the, the confidence and the ability to rely on your own intellect and articulate an argument, whether you have the right answer, but at least if you can be confident that you've learned enough about the topic to have a, a really robust discussion and bring that into a group collaborative environment, I think that is so important. So I've learned a lot on my journey. I have a lot more to learn and um, and it's been very exciting. So happy to be here. Well, Alex, thank you for such a wonderful question because I think it's really important to sort of share our upbringing and our backgrounds because I think it really does inform your value proposition and your career choices. And no different to the three ladies on the panel, um, my background and where I come from is really influenced my career choices and I'll share a little bit about myself. So I come from a refugee family. My mother a Vietnamese refugee, my father a Cambodian refugee and we grew up with very little and I think I saw a book for the first time when I started school and I loved reading but we didn't have access to books so I would read the Melways and I'd read the yellow pages and I enjoyed it so much and I remember when I was nine years old 
my parents bought their first house and being the eldest in the family and one with the best English skills, I was the interpreter for the transaction. Um, so as the eldest daughter of three, I looked after my siblings and we grew up together and I always had a sense of advocacy and I always knew that education was the key to transforming our lives. And I also always saw the disadvantage and the challenges that you have as someone who doesn't have empowerment and and particularly from a refugee perspective. So I always was drawn to the law and to advocacy. And so I was the first person in my family to have a tertiary education. Um, and following that, my brother and sister also had a tertiary education. And, I, and we are sort of, I guess, a success story in Australia for the refugee um, population. But I guess for me, I've always, for all the roles that I've chosen, whether at Vanguard or at ASIC, it's always been around the consumer and around advocacy. And I think you can always choose different career paths and have different careers, but ultimately you always ask yourself, what is your value proposition and what are you about? And for me, it's always about ensuring that there's consumer choice, empowerment and a healthy, proper disclosure and diversity in the market. And one of the things I'm particularly proud of, um, obviously at ASIC, the value proposition is quite clear around disclosure and consumers and consumer policy. But particularly at Vanguard, um, while I was so drawn to the role there, um, my role there is basically launching Vanguard's product plans. We launch all the new products. And my role is particularly around designing products um, and bringing them to market. And how do we make a product as suitable for our consumers and make sure that there's greater diversity. And one of the products that we launched last year was our first ESG product, so environmental social governance, where we don't invest in tobacco, we don't invest in nuclear weapons. And so for me, there's a strong value proposition, a strong story. And so I'm particularly proud of that and proud of Vanguard for launching that product. And I think, you know, all of us should think in this banking Royal Commission um, climate, we are all asking questions about our role in the industry, what we could have done differently in all the stories that we're hearing. And I think it's important to go back and think about, well, why is it that I'm in this role? What is the value proposition? What am I about? And, and what do I get out of work? And what's the meaning I get out of that? So I think it's a really important question. I'm glad Alex has asked that because I think particularly in this environment where we're hearing the most negative stories in the press every day about our industry, it's really important to ask ourselves that question. Yeah. Great, thank you all. So from now we'll probably just ask um, each question to two different panellists and get your views on those. So the next question I'll pose to you, maybe Jenny and Jane. Um, how has your diversity played a role in shaping your leadership experience? And within your role, how do you challenge stereotypes and promote sensitivity and inclusion? You may go first on that one, Jane. <laughs> I'm happy for you to go first, Jane. <laughs> no, I'm okay. leaving it to you. All right. Well, I guess for me around the diversity point, obviously in financial services, um, often I am one of the only women in the room um, and particularly so in the boards that I'm on. So often in the boardroom, I'm usually, you know, one or two women in the room. And I think if you're ever chairing a meeting or you're running a meeting, you always make sure that everybody, it's good governance, it's good practice to ensure that everyone is included in the conversation. So whenever I have an opportunity to chair meetings, I always make sure I do that. And I think, you know, it's just having a lot of self-awareness around uh, boardroom dynamics, around um, unconscious bias, all those sorts of things, um, particularly even day-to-day um, -day at work, you know, in, in senior meetings where, to be honest, there are a lot of men in the room, 
Um, it can be a very different vibe when you're the only woman and you really do notice that. And um, I think it's just, you know, generally a self-awareness around that and making sure that everyone has an opportunity to speak. So that's sort of, you know, how I sort of approach it. Um, I'm often in a situation where I'm the only woman in the room. To tell you the truth, I haven't quite worked out whether I'm just used to it now and so it doesn't bother me so much or um, whether it literally often doesn't matter. And I'm going to get into sort of, I'm absolutely certain I'm going to get into some contentious areas tonight, so let's assume that it's Chatham House rules, even though I've got a dictaphone in front of me here. Um, But I told you about that very difficult job interview that we all have to go through to get to where we are. That pre-selection is tough, and I think it's actually tougher on women than it is on men. Um, because of that, though, I think that our male colleagues actually understand that. They see that. They know that it is actually tough on us. Once you get in there, quotas or no, once you get in there because of how hard you've fought to be there, you automatically have the respect of your male colleagues. You automatically have a voice in the room. You do have to keep on, in any job, you have to keep on demonstrating your credibility and your worth, but I don't think that that's unusual in politics. I think that that's common for for all of us. Um, But I don't ever feel like my voice is lost in the crowd in the Liberal Party. Certainly there are some very loud voices, but I don't think that they are at all gender-specific. Now, I know that that's going to frustrate a lot of people who would like to see better female representation on my side of the chamber. I would like to see better female representation on my side of the chamber too, not because it looks good. I don't think that, you know, we don't want this for aesthetic purposes. We want it because uh, the more diverse voices that you have around the table, the better the outcomes. You know, the wisdom of crowds theory that not only does diverse perspective and views make for better decision-making, but it also emboldens those that might be susceptible to uncritical groupthink. So that's why we want more women there. But don't for a second think that the women that are there are shy or retiring or that they're not heard. We are heard. Thank you very much. The next, um, the next question we'll ask to Siobhan and Ariane. Mm-hmm. How can we elevate and increase inclusion, particularly in the financial services sector? Sure. Um, So this is a great question, and I will try and do it justice because I know this conversation has been happening for a little while, particularly in financial services. Again, I started my career in financial services in New York in the 90s, so at 21 when I graduated, I had the the joy of going into Maryland's trading floor and being told about all the sexual harassment cases that were getting brought down by the 40-odd-year-old men, and did I have an issue with that? That was really confronting for me. Here I was, young woman... Um, very much in the minority on the trading floor and being asked by men twice my age, how did I feel about sexual harassment? They were struggling with it. I was struggling with it. This has been going on for decades. And I can't say that I've had, um, other than obviously growing older and becoming more mature and more confident in my skills and capabilities, and to your point, proving myself, because we all have to prove ourselves in our roles. And I think that is the ultimate test when you come home and you've had a hard time you need to truly sit down with yourself and say, have I have I done my best here? Am I well suited to this role? Because it is a tough industry. Every, a lot of industries are quite tough. Um, but financial services being such a technical 
um, a technical industry, it's really important that you prove your mettle. So I think on the diversity and inclusion point, we as women have struggled to, um, A, find our voice in our own way, and B, been able to prove our own mettle um, in a very male-dominated field. Why? The more senior you get, particularly in the roles that I've been in, um, they, they increasingly have a sales component, um, particularly if you're on the sell side, obviously. So when you're working with clients, men do, and this is more a general statement, um, they, I do see excellent male, male salespeople who have an ability to sell something. Women, and I can speak to myself as well, I won't sell something unless I believe in it. And I know a lot of female colleagues are the same. And I didn't learn this so acutely until more recently when I started comparing notes with other women like me who've been working in the industry. So I've been in the industry for over 25 years now. And when I was a young woman working my, th- my way through and I was challenging and getting almost beaten down by, no, 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 like we are selling this product or this is the right product or the margin is right on this product or the technicals are right, you don't know what you're talking about. It's really hard to stand up for yourself and actually make your case when you're the only woman in the room or you're in the minority. And this is where I really feel um, I haven't landed anywhere firmly on the quotas question, which I I do feel like I need to at some point in the near future. Um, I do feel like this tipping point of the 30% has a merit to it, because if you know that there's other voices in the room that you can look to and rely on and and leverage, I think there's a lot in that. But... um, I, I also love the fact that more recently um, men have become part of the conversation and, and mostly men who have daughters, men who have sisters, and they're recognizing that their daughters and sisters are not having the same opportunities as um, their sons um, and brothers. So there's a lot of work to do, but I think the, the best way we're going to get there is by proving ourselves with our own skills and having the confidence and the maturity to speak up. Um, and, and be our best selves, which sounds a bit idealistic, but that is part of my profile. Great. Um, so just talking from my experience, I've, I've also, whilst not, I don't specialise wholly in the financial services industry, um, I do have a number of matters in that, and I've, in the professional services industry, I think we have the same challenges, and again, pleading for Chatham House rules here as well. Um, and particularly in my area, it is quite a male-dominated um, industry, there aren't many women in it, and typically, um, as I said, it's quite contentious. And so, you will be um, up against another expert who's probably a man, probably about 15 years older than me, and automatically, I know he will be perceived as being steelier than I am. Now, I think that's a tremendous advantage to me because it means I will be underestimated. And when you shift your thinking on that, it actually gives you so much power. Um, and so I think in terms of what can we do to create a level playing field and what do we do to promote diversity, I think, um, first of all, it's understanding the strength that comes with diversity. So why is someone like me going to be able to prevail against your typical, what people would see as the person they want in their corner? And I think that's, that is having these different people in the room and creating that level playing field. And it's a tremendously difficult thing to do because we are all human and we all have our own biases. And unconscious bias is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to unprogram. And the only way that you really break that down is through the concerted effort to bring 
diversity, not just women, men, but different cultures. And that self-awareness of how we perceive one another and how we operate in an environment. So I'm a, quite an extroverted individual and I get my energy from thinking about things with other people and talking to them about it. That terrifies the life out of me, Trevor. And I've had people that I just could not get along with and it was because I was probably terrifying them by, they perceived, demanding answers from me all the time, me demanding answers from them all the time. And all I wanted to do was try and collaborate with them. So I think that appreciation of the diversity of thought and background and the skills and and what each person's superpower is that they can bring to the table is really important. And I think we've got a long way to go on that because I think a lot of organisations are still talking about just gender diversity and that absolutely we are not um, where we should be on that. We've got a lot, a lot of organisations have a long way to go on that because we don't have 50-50 representation. But then the... the um, the cultural diversity or diversity of thought is this whole other um, area that really needs to be explored for this truly diversity to be achieved. Uh, so what are the other things that I think we should be doing? Um, mentoring and sponsorship. And I know that we have some questions around I know that we have some questions around that later, but um, using my own experiences where I have been the only woman in the room and I have felt that no matter how much um, I spoke, I was getting drowned out. I have been in teams where it was a total boys' club and it was awful. And um, I'm very good at picking those now and strategising how to do things in, in a meeting that make myself not look like one of the boys. I've got to celebrate my individuality and you're never more convincing than when you're authentic. But how do you have your voice heard? And there's a myriad of different sort of things about the way you speak or the way that you present yourself. Happy to talk to anyone about that after. But learning how to be impactful in the environment you're in is really important. And so having taken those learnings, um, I'm on the lookout constantly. It's now just part of how I operate at work of people who I don't think for one reason or another are getting heard, who have the special superpower. It might be the introvert in the room who I won't ask them a question in the meeting but I'll take them aside later and say, can you talk me through this? I really want to understand and you seem to understand this and let them do all the talking. Or it's, you know, the, the female director who's not being able, not getting a word in edgewise at the table. Um, so that's self-awareness and I think it, it's, beholden amongst the senior members of these organisations to ensure that little by little they're nudging things back on track along with the bigger scale initiatives that I think we'll get on to later that really reinforce um, the importance of diversity in, in the organisation's culture. We've had some fabulous insights so far and Mercedes and I, I think, have got about another 10 questions here for our audience. But I welcome um, if anyone has a question from the audience before we come back to some of our questions. Anyone with a question that they'd like to ask? Raise your hand. One of the things I did early in my career was I forced myself to put my hand up for the first question because <laughs> inevitably there will be another person who asks your question. So I'm, I'm glad Ariane put it that way, because exactly the same way. Um, as you ask your question to the panel, please introduce yourself. Um, if it's focused on a member of the board or Matt Browning from UCA Funds Management. Um, I was talking to Jane earlier, and she was saying the closest question is going to come up. <laughs> we, we have a 50-50 quota on, on our board, uh, and we have a very strong diversity policy 
business. So what are your views on the current question? I knew you were going to do this to me. I should have said anything. I knew it. Look, uh, and, and, and I said to you, my answer is going to not please a lot of people in the room. But I want you to understand the difference between... Oh, hang on. Let me first of all, let's, just, let's take a step back. Quotas work. Quotas change the culture of an organisation. They work very well indeed. And I, I've seen them work in action in the finance industry. I've seen them work very well in the Labor Party. There, there is actually a really good case for quotas. And I'll probably differ from my very good friend Louise Staley here too. I don't think that they work in the Liberal Party. Let me explain to you why. Because the Labor Party is quite similar to an organisation. It's a hierarchy and it comes with a, there's a command and control uh, structure and framework. The, 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 there's an authoritarian uh, command that comes from the top and says, this is the way we are going to do our business. Organisations do it. The Labor Party do it, and that's fine. And they're used to that. It's part of their culture. The Liberal Party is very different. We are, ironically, we're already an oxymoron. We're a collective of individuals, and we're very um, adamant that we don't like being told what to do. That's why we're Liberals. We don't like a state command and control structure. We like a grassroots movement. So to have a directive come from the top and say, you must have more women actually creates more problems in our organisation than it does if it comes from the bottom up. The challenge for the Liberal Party is to get that bottom up groundswell of support for more women. Now, sadly, I think we're there. And the reason why we're there is because the problem now is so stark. I'm so disappointed that it got to this before we had the conversation. But if we created a command and control, you must have more women, it actually creates um, pockets of resentments and fissures in the system that can actually be very detrimental to women. Uh, if we came through on a quota system, it would create resentment amongst our male colleagues. Oh, she wasn't really up to it. Oh, she's, you know, doesn't really belong here. We can just discount her. And that's a real problem. Now, I don't necessarily think that's the case in Parliament because we do have a leader and a command and control structure to an extent in the Parliament. If Scott Morrison says, I want half women on my in my cabinet, that's great. But he can't control who has been elected by the party itself. That has to come from the ground up. And that's where our challenge really lies. One of the things that I've been working on that I know a lot of different states... And this is the other thing too... It's not a binary discussion. It's not quotas or nothing. There is so much going on. We are also a federation of states. Our organisation is a federation of states. There are different programs going on in Tasmania, which are different to the ones in WA, which are different to the ones in Victoria. Here in Victoria, I ran a, a mentoring program for um, um, for, for you know, aspirational political women um, for a number of years before I was elected. In WA, there's a, a program that uh, pulls women out of professional organisations, you know, lawyers and, and accountants and management consultants and women from the finance industry, and it creates sort of a support group of women, a, you know, a, a talent pool from which they can encourage women to, to join the party and get involved in politics. Because the, I think that the vast majority of women 
particularly that are in politics, the, the best performing ones are ones that have come from other industries, uh, that they're not profit, uh, you know, um, professional political apparatchiks. And if you look at somebody like a Julie Bishop, you know, she was a managing partner at a law firm. If you look at someone like Linda Reynolds, well, she was a brigadier in the army. Um, yeah, Michaela Cash was a, a, a lawyer. Uh, you know, I mean, there was just there's, there's um, in, incredible talent that's come um, from 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 different industries, and I think that actually makes women far more, and it tends to be the women, uh, that makes them far more valuable in the Liberal Party. So we've just got to sort of draw out that value and and make people realise that just because they're 40 years old and have been in the finance industry all their lives doesn't necessarily mean that they have, you know, that's it for life. There potentially is a career in politics ahead of them, which is quite exciting, a quite exciting alternative. So I hope that answers your question, Matt. I don't know, Paul, because you said, I've got to make up my decision. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried you were going to say that. Um, so for me, and I think this comes back to my training and my basic makeup. It was the numbers that that really started triggering. So I was I I have been on the fence regarding the the quota question for a long time. I like Jane's argument around. Um, I would prefer to be an individual thinker than be told what to do, and I'm horrified by the idea that um, uh, when you go in for an interview and you have to have the the female candidate she's tokenistic i i really don't like the tokenistic aspect to um that could happen if you have the the female candidate who um doesn't have the same metal as the male candidate but i appreciate why that has has been implemented so for me i read something in the last few years which really struck me which was that in my lifetime at the current rate we're going there will be no equality and I thought, I'm not getting any younger here. I have two daughters. Um, I am too on um, a number of boards. Uh, and, and the best conversations I have are when we have equal representation around the table, both at a gender level and a, and a diversity level holistically. So I have definitely firmly landed on this diversity element. It does deliver our performance. I've seen it in financial markets. I've seen it in products. I've seen it with people. And um, this is where I'm sort of veering towards the 30% tipping point because I read when the 30% Club launched in Australia and it was a fantastic presentation done by the founder of the 30% Club out of the UK talking about when you get to 30%, you're no longer in the minority. So I actually believe that if you can no longer be in the minority and you do have that voice at the table, then you can influence the overall decision-making process, and I believe that that delivers better better outcomes. So that's where I, where I am at the moment. But again, I have my two daughters, and I have one at home who is quite outspoken. Um, so she's she's going to be a communist. And <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on the journey. Um, what I'd say actually is about quotas and targets. I think it's quite important around the board conversation, and I can't even begin to tell you how many times around the boardroom. They say, we'd love to have a woman, but we actually don't know many that could be in the role. I find that so surprising. And a lot of people who are sort of, you know, the, the general sort of view is that targets and quotas means that women aren't appointed on merit and we should be appointed on merit and that it can be tokenistic. I agree should women should be appointed on merit, but let's all acknowledge that when men are appointed, they're appointed on merit, but also on network also on mentoring and sponsorship. So sometimes I feel like that maybe, um, you know, I look at men when they network, 
it's BAU. They do it so natural. And I think sometimes, like even for myself, I have to make it part of my life in my career. I'm so busy doing all the work that I don't actually invest in my relationships and things like that. And it's really important to do that. So I think networking is really important, mentorship and sponsorship. And maybe that's why women aren't on the radar. Maybe that's why in the boardroom people are saying, well, where are the women? We'd love to have women, but we don't know who. And I think that's really unacceptable because we all know, even in this room, there are so many talented women and everywhere in Melbourne. So I think there's um, something that we should think about in that context as well. Yeah, so uh, I agree wholeheartedly with the comments here. Um, I I am a, I am in favour of um, certainly I I call it sort of targets with teeth. So targets where there are measurable that are very measurable and impactful if they're not met. And one of the reasons I believe in it is because, as I said, unconscious bias. We are not purely objective beings. Um, and so, therefore, unless there is something to aim for and a reason to aim for it, uh, we will always go with who we're comfortable with. Oh, but I trust them more. No, you're comfortable with them. There's nothing to say that there isn't somebody else that brings more diversity to this team that you couldn't be just as comfortable with. I also think that, um, you know, to Jenny's point, I've also heard, oh, I'd love to get more women into this industry it's just that there aren't enough and it's you're not looking hard enough that's the problem you're not looking hard enough or if we start to do something around targets well it could mean that the um the less the 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 candidate with less merit just gets put in because they're a woman i find that hugely insulting because if you unpack that statement it actually reveals the very nub of the issue, because what it's saying, in order for that, in order for that statement to hold, you are basically saying, on average, the woman will not be as capable as the man, and I find that incredibly insulting. And so, as you can imagine, that's not said to me very much anymore. <laughs> so I think, whilst it's not a pretty solution. I acknowledge that. It's not pretty, it's not perfect, and it's certainly not the silver bullet. I wonder that it's not something that can be aimed for and can be clung to as what we are trying to get to, which gets the wheels turning to the cultural change that's required. Because you can't lecture people about cultural change. It has to be, and Jane will be the absolute expert in this, you cannot lecture people on where you want to get to it actually needs to be a groundswell of influence and showing the way. And I do feel that the quota or the target with teeth sets a beacon that you need to head for um, because, as Ariane said, it is totally unacceptable that we will not achieve equality in our lifetime and probably not in our children's lifetime. So that just cannot be. Can I just add something very quickly mm. to that, Alex? Because I think that Siobhan made some very good points there. Mm. The idea of a target with teeth mm. is so important. I think that that works, again, yeah. in organisations. Very hard to impose a target with teeth in a, a volunteer organisation yes, because agree. what yeah. do you punish people with in a volunteer organisation? Yeah. One of the great problems of the Liberal Party. Yeah. The other problem that we have, I think, is this, um, again, another binary concept. Mm. It's either quotas or it's merit. Mm. Merit is crap. 
Merit is the most subjective term that you will ever find. It's not for some reason it's used as a euphemism for objectivity, and it is not. Mm. It is not at all. So the hard part is getting to people to change their concept, their internal biases, mm. their subconscious biases of what merit looks like. The other real problem, of course, is this issue of um, mentoring. And as I said, I did a lot of work in mentoring in the Liberal Party, trying to mentor younger women. And what I discovered first and foremost is that, and you you probably already know this, that men form organically mentoring relationships far better than women do. Uh, You know, older men look to younger men and say, oh, he reminds me of him, me when I was his age. And, you know, they just automatically sort of take people under their wing, whereas women don't tend to do that. There's also a sort of a natural human condition uh, that means uh, that, you know, and it's called um, homosocial reproduction, which sounds like something that Corey Bernardi would naturally be against, and that's not it. It is, in fact, a, a tendency for us to replicate ourselves, and it's a natural human condition to replicate ourselves. So, again, that's something that we've got to, to overcome. Sponsorship, although I think in politics, is the key. That's a very hard thing to do because you can't get sponsorship through a... You can get mentoring through a formal program, but sponsorship has to be organic. And that's very, very difficult to find. And I just don't think that political women have done that as well as political men. And that's really the next great leap that we've got to take. And I think also um, we talk about, you know, how can we bring everybody on this journey? And broadening the discussion beyond gender, obviously there's work to go there to work to be, um, or achievements to be made. It's also a cultural diversity and I think, um, I think it was Ariane was saying earlier that it's not until someone can actually relate it to a member of their family that they become um, extremely, you know, interested in the cause. And I know that, um, you know, when I started working, my father was sort of outraged at some of the stories that I'd come home with. And said, oh, you women, you need to get together. You need to tell this managing partner of yours this is not acceptable. And so he started to get sort of quite vigilante about it um but i think it's um it, it behoves senior members of all parts of the organization um to really have the diversity objective as their personal objective and understand what is the pipeline of the organization for future talent and invest in it because you know your leaders are there today and have you've invested in them and they're there to set the strategic objective for the short to medium term, but who's coming up behind them? So what will the face of your organisation look like in five years' time or what do you what do you effectively leave behind? You know, in a partnership like PwC, we're always talking about it's a role of stewardship, it's not a role for life. And so what do you leave behind as a group of leaders when you will, you know, retire or move on? Um, and so having that forward thinking and, and ensuring that you're shaping the future of your organisation is also really important. We'll give a, an opportunity for one more question. I can say a hand half raised to the back, but um, uh, this will be the final question from the audience, but um, there will still be 30 minutes this evening before um, we ask Tweet to wrap up for you to all have a chance with our speakers and ask any questions um, with them as we close the evening. Hi, my name is Kylie Mayer. I'm a senior business bank manager for National Australia Bank. Um, I've been in the banking industry for about 18 years and I started in business bank in 2008. Um, I was transferred from Melbourne to Queensland um, for my first you know, early 20s um, in business banking and 
and the centre I actually went to had 27 business bank managers. Every one of them was male. <laughs> Every single one of them. Welcome to Queensland. <laughs> 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 um, so for me, as a young, enthusiastic 20-year-old girl, um, with a centre full of, I would say, probably half stale business managers, all male, it was really, really hard. Um, so I know a lot of the things that your, your ladies are saying. I find it very inspirational and, and um, I definitely have been there because it was really hard and, and I had to be very um, uh, forceful in recruiting myself to these managers. At the time, I guess I didn't really feel like I had um, anyone to talk to or any help or any support. Um, the only reason I went there was because one particular manager really saw my um, passion for business uh, and business bank. I kind of fell into it by accident, like taking an appointment by accident as a manager and just went with it. And was really good at it and really enjoyed it. So my question to you is if you had to say one thing to any young person that's wanting to obviously you know, proceed a career in more so probably the business bank side of financial services, um, to sort of increase their confidence and make them feel feel good that they can do it. What what would you say? What's one thing that you would you want to say to any any girl? I'm happy to jump in. So I say this to girls, young women, young men, a lot of people. Um, I'm I I feel uh, privileged that in last few years, lots of people have approached me for advice, and I don't think I'm the sage of wisdom by any stretch of the word, but I've seen a lot in my career and having worked and lived in many countries, I am extremely pragmatic about problem solving and listening to other voices around the room. My ultimate message to most people is find what you're really good at and what you love. And I know that sounds really easy, but it's not. It took me a long time to figure out what I was really good at and what I loved. And I'm continuously refining that. Um, I love my family. I love my career. Sometimes those don't both go together, but I have managed to find a way to, um, through compromise and sacrifice and hard work, come out the other side of having two beautiful daughters, one with a disability and having married a man from another country and having migrated and having made concessions in my career to be able to be with him here that has allowed me to really dig deep and find some resilience and say, okay, you know what, I'm in an industry I love. I might not have been on the career trajectory that is the normal trajectory in this career, in this industry, but I continually have proven myself. And so I think it's intrinsic on all of us to just keep checking in and have that self-awareness. I like how you spoke about that earlier. Have the ability to actually be self-aware enough to say, I believe I'm really good at this and this is what I love. And if you're not sure, just keep testing yourself and, and get that feedback from other people and be careful who you ask that from. Because if you ask the wrong person, they might give you an answer which will increase your self-doubt if you already have some and that's not constructive. So I think there is a deep self-awareness piece, which sometimes we don't always have, particularly early in our career, but this is where the mentoring and the sponsorship comes in. Because if somebody else sees something in you, let them help you if they offer. And if you don't have that person, obviously parents are great. Be proactive. Seek out people who will help you with that messaging because we all deserve it. It's important. Can I... I would first start by saying you should... Everybody in the room should recognise the nobility in their profession, particularly when their profession 
is being criticised. And I speak from experience that I get criticised an awful lot. If ever I want to go through a little self... If I've had a bad day... I just go onto Twitter and see what they're saying about me. That <laughs> That's like self-flagellation. <laughs> we all like to do a little bit of self-punishment now and then. But what you do is so important, is so important. I mean, business banking essentially is, is the grease that makes the wheels of the economy go round. And particularly in a profession at the moment, which is so under siege, you know, and where trust is at an all-time low, somebody like you, and particularly as you're female, can actually rise above that. You know, women are genuinely, generally more trusted than, than men. Um, sorry, fellas, it's just, we, we, we just have those faces. But no, we, we, no, we, we're empathetic. Uh, we, you know, we tend to ask the right questions. Men are, let's face it, men are better at networking, women are better at empathy. And so you have such extraordinary opportunity where you are. So recognise not just the nobility of the profession, be so proud of what you do, but work out how you as an individual can take advantage of the profession that you're in and you know, do the best job that you possibly can. And that actually makes going to work every day really exciting. I, I, you know, I once did a job in, in funds management actually, um, <laughs> Monique will know exactly which job I'm talking about, where I went to work every day hoping that the building had burned down. You know, you walk to it with your eyes closed, going, please let the building burn down, please. I, you know, I started work in a really tough job, coming off maternity leave in, in, uh, on the day that Lehman Brothers collapsed. It was my first day. It was terrible. It was the worst job I'd ever done, and I hated it, and it was full of... It was, I, was, I was literally the only woman. And, uh, and I, I loathed it on a daily basis. But when you find something that you where there is a nobility in what you're doing and you're actually good at it and you can and you can see how you can you know rise to the top like the cream and milk it's it's you know it's a joyous experience so you know i wish you luck and, and congratulate you on on your career choice because it's a really good one i think it's really interesting sort of thinking about you know points in your life where you make a career choice a new job or a make a change is that often as women we always think oh maybe I'm not qualified enough to do that role and we look at job descriptions and unless we tick every single dot point in the JD we're not going to apply whereas men they just back themselves and they apply and I think we just the the thing I would always share to young women and law graduates and business graduates is back yourself and don't sweat the small stuff because most of the time as you know when you have graduates who come in you just want to make sure that they have a good work attitude and a good work ethic. We don't expect them to know, you know, everything and technically be brilliant, like just an eagerness to learn. And I think that's something that we should all remember as we progress in our careers, um, even when we're mid-career thinking about a career change, that all the skills that you've learned up to this date are really adaptable and you could, you know, really back yourself and have that confidence. And I think that sometimes we have a lot of self-doubt and I have that as well and I think it's always just managing that and really back yourself and know that you are intelligent and that you can take on new tasks and you know everyone um, is supportive of your learning and you know growth opportunities so I think that's something I think I have to be really conscious about and I think as women we all should be supportive of each other and conscious about as well. Yeah I think there should always be something in your role you're a little bit uncomfortable doing um, something that scares you a little bit every day and um and I do think also you've got to find, you know, what you're passionate about and what your environment needs. And I think a couple of comments tonight have 
probably resonated with you in that the the industry that that you're in and the passion that you have for business banking um there's a real cry for people like that I think in the in the industry so finding that intersection between your passion and the need and being authentic about it you know if you're the if you're the one woman in a group of 26 blokes don't try and be a bloke be you because that's what makes you know you know you unique you've been a long time you and so there's no point trying to change now um and also I think that it's I don't know if anyone's heard the theory of sort of the roughly north so if there's somewhere that you want to get to in life um you know you you aim for it roughly north so if it's you're progressing you're still taking opportunities you're still meeting great people you're still getting good feedback you're heading in the general direction. I think um, sometimes people get too caught up on planning and life is what happens while you're planning. Um, so that heading in a general direction but keeping true to the authenticity, your passion, your skill set, being surrounded by good people will get you to where, in fact, you may not have planned to but it's better than what you could have imagined. Um, so, And also I would say seeking out. Um, mentors and people who will give you that constructive feedback because they will find things in you you've never seen. They will suggest new challenges for you you never would have thought of. Um, they'll notice things about you that you never have. Um, you know, that's how a lot of the things that I think I'm probably good at in my job, I don't think I noticed them. It was because someone who I, I valued their opinion has told me I handled the situation well or I didn't handle the situation well and why they think that happened. Um, so that's really important as well. So I will just pass up all our panellists for if they've got any final thoughts that they want to leave with your audience. So many. <laughs> so many. I want one more, I want one more, you know, wild, audacious question just to kind of round out, but um, we can do that over drinks afterwards. I think the current environment is absolutely fascinating, and I really uh, applaud the men who came along tonight because this is not an easy conversation for a lot of people, but the fact that you're here and you're participating and you're open actually means a lot to me personally and also I think resonates with the whole audience, so thank you very sincerely. I don't know how this conversation is going to end. I'm... Um, fascinated by the fact that it feels like we've been all having this conversation for a long time so I think we need to really make the best effort uh, while we're focused on the topic to engage with each other and and progress um, but at the same time let's not get too toxic about it because it has gotten a bit and um, I think um, sharp in the last 18 months and some of the things were, were important to bring out and obviously the Me Too movement has galvanized a lot of things um, I think what happens in Australia is also quite interesting relative to what's happening globally. So um, I'm just saying thank you for the discussion and thank you in particular for the, for the diversity in the room. It's been very constructive. Um, I was just going to say, I think, you know, this diversity conversation and culture has been really important, particularly in this climate, not just in our sector with the Royal Commission, but thinking about in film for Screen Australia, talking about the Me Too movement and how women are treated talking about in the health sector around surgeons and doctors in training and how women are treated in that environment. And I think it's interesting because I think there's a realisation at this point in history that governance and diversity are, are tied together, that to have good governance means diversity, not just women, but broadly diversity in thought. And, and, and I think and 
around accountability. And I think it's an, an interesting time in our history to live through this period and to see what opportunities come for women and for people who, you know, aren't traditionally seen in leadership roles. So I think it's a really fascinating time to have this conversation. Can I just say that having this conversation in this room I think is so important and particularly in this industry. I mean, there are so many well-educated, extraordinarily bright um, and very successful women, not just in this room but in our industry generally, and yet we have the highest gender pay gap still, which is extraordinary. And it's, um, and it's, it's not actually improving all that fast. The only industry that is doing worse on the gender pay gap than finance is construction. Wow. That's pretty ordinary. So uh, it's not just a matter of inclusion. It's also a matter of, you know, oh, gosh, I just sounded like Sheryl Sandberg there for a minute. You, know, you have to actually, you know, lean in, ask for more. You know, what's the worst that can happen if you ask for more? What is the worst that can happen? So it's not just a – we can't just say we're going to ride the wave of, uh, you know, this movement towards equality or um, gender parity or whatever it might be. It's up to all of us to play our parts in this. Nothing bad happens from asking. Maybe a bruised ego, maybe a sleepless night. Big deal. In the scheme of things, just ask and you shall receive. I'm going to add a slightly different comment, and that is... um that there's obviously an enormous amount of talented men and women in this room. And so have a think about your careers carefully about whether or not you're challenged and you're getting what you want out of your career. And also whether you're in an organisation and environment that should be entrusted with you and your great skills and your and your career. And whether or not if you're getting what you need out of it and whether or not you are struggling with diversity um, and being heard and making sure that you're surrounding yourself in a healthy environment where you can achieve the best you can. Because um, I think organisations that have a bad culture uh, get found out and people vote with their feet. And I think that the way you achieve a groundswell is is water finding its its own level and 